It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, standing in for your regular host, Helen Lewis. This week, I talked to George Eaton and Anoush Shakilian about the Labour leadership race and how exactly it works, and then to Tom Gatti and Stephanie Boland about Ali Smith's award-winning novel, How to Be Both. I'm here with our political editor, George Eaton, and our deputy web editor, Anoush Shakilian, to talk about the Labour leadership race. But before we get into the politics of who's running and who's doing what, I thought we'd just briefly clarify how this works. A lot of discussion has gone on about this, about nominations, endorsements and so on. But just so you know, this is how it works. George. Yes. So um, to get onto the Labour leadership ballot, uh, contenders need to be nominated by 12.5% of uh, MPs, uh, which is 35 and so far, Andy Burnham, who is the, the favourite for the job, um, is the only one to have reached that threshold. Um, but Yvette Cooper and Liz Kendall are also likely to make the ballot. And when do they have to have these nominations in by? So, um, forget the exact date, but it's uh, nominations close early June. The um, PLP hustings are next week, so that's when... Um, for the first time, the candidates will appear in front of MPs in uh, where the Labour Party meets in Committee Room 14 of the uh, House of Commons. Uh, and I know there are some MPs who are actually waiting until that to decide who to nominate. And there are others who um, perhaps slightly self-interestedly are waiting to see which way is the wind blowing, perhaps in anticipation of which job they could have afterwards. And Anoush, there's a, a lot of politicking, of course, goes on around this Um you know, people announcing various groups of MPs endorsing them or people, as George says, holding back. Uh, what's the kind of favourite strategy for that? Um, well, they like to announce sort of in batches. So they might announce a certain number of new MPs from the new intake, the new 2015 intake. Or they, or like Andy Burnham recently, uh, they might announce a certain number of MPs from a certain area in the country. So he chose to um publicised people from London who were backing him and people from southern constituencies and places in Wales so that he showed that he wasn't just the northern candidate. So um, in a way, they try and release the names in a way that the media will cover them or the media will spin it to say London MPs go for 
whichever candidate. So that's the tactic that I've seen them using so far. And then the candidates with fewer names, so Mary Cray, I think she's only got six publicly at the moment. I think that's right. Um, She likes to say that she's holding some back and that we'll be surprised, but she'll definitely make the ballot paper. That might just be a way of saving face or, you know, we never know what might happen. Also, um, we don't write her off too soon, I suppose. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, George, just tell us a little bit about this is the first leadership election that's being conducted under the reformed party system where uh, we now have one member one vote Mm, that's right so until ed Miliband's reforms last year uh labor leadership elections were held under an electoral college system in which mps and meps had a third of the votes uh party members had a third and affiliated members of trade unions and socialist societies such as the fabian society had the remaining third uh, now Labour has fallen into line with the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats in using a one-member, one-vote system, um, which has ended absurdities such as some uh, members, some MPs having uh, double-digit votes because they belong to so many uh, different organisations and, and unions and so on. Um, so they had, you know, I, I know of someone who had 12 votes, for instance. So the fact that this is the first one to be happening under this system makes it a bit more unpredictable, perhaps. And also, uh, I suppose, um, for MPs, this will be the first time that they might feel a little less influential about choosing their leader, because whilst they do have control over who actually gets on the ticket, after that, it's down to everyone else, right? Absolutely. And so MPs' endorsements are still important in that they will go back to their constituency parties and say, I've endorsed um, Andy Burnham, here's why, and that is bound to have influence on, on, on the ordinary members. Um, but it's quite possible, for instance, that Liz Kendall could win with the support of less than th- uh, less than a third of, of MPs, um, which some may see as as a as a potential problem if she, if uh, there is a it, there is a divide there. Well, now you've mentioned Liz Kendall, uh, let's talk a bit about her. Um, Anu, she's sort of seen as if not the outsider, at least definitely not the favourite, as George mentioned, Andy Burnham's clearly the front runner. But there seems to be a growing idea that not only will she certainly make the ballot, that she might, you know, give him a run for his money. Exactly. The advantage that Liz Kendall has is that she is not associated with Labour's past in the way that the other two um, big beasts in the contest, Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham, are seen. So she can sort of develop her own image um, from scratch in a way. And she's managed to do that very effectively. Most people hadn't really heard of her when she entered the leadership race, even though she'd been in Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet. But she's managed to develop... um, quite a comprehensive sort of image of herself. The tone of her campaign is very clear. Lots of people will call it, you know, Blairism or neo-Blairism, but actually she is putting herself to a certain side of the party and she's talking about certain policies that she agrees with, things like free schools and tuition fees, um, and tying her colours to a mast, which is, I think, more than you can say for the other candidates at the moment. So, yeah, George, at the moment, uh, Yvette Cooper particularly, but also Andy Burnham to an extent, are very much just setting the tone aren't they they haven't really given us much meaty policy to think about yet that's right um and some of them have set up working groups and committees to explore economic policy for instance andy burnham has rachel reeves uh, leading his work on that so he's likely to come forward for instance with proposals on tax he supported a land value tax in 2010 i'd be quite surprised if he doesn't this time given that he has said that he didn't like the label mansion tax, he thought it spoke of the politics of envy, but he does believe in higher taxes on wealth and assets. And we've talked about his, uh, his what, what might 
win it for him in the sense but what what's going to be what's he got to get over i mean he is he was a minister uh, he was health minister at a time of various different controversies around the nhs is that gonna play mm. badly for him so his past is one disadvantage in that david cameron and and the rest of the conservatives will be able to try and tar him with the legacy of the last labor government in a way they won't be able to with liz kendall who was elected in, in 2010 um that he's seen as the left-wing candidate could still harm him if uh, some party members who, of course, voted for David Miliband in, in 2010, so not Ed Miliband, um, conclude that Labour lost the election because it was seen as too left-wing. But Andy Burnham is trying to counter that by uh, pursuing quite a centrist strategy. So he made his first major speech of the campaign at Ernest & Young, a very pro-business speech, emphasising the need for fiscal responsibility, not, as some expected, running to the left of Ed Miliband and saying we lost because we weren't anti-austerity enough. And then the other hurdle for him is that he's a man and uh, he's running against uh, two women. And there is a significant proportion of members who think it's about time that Labour finally had a female leader and who will um, almost automatically vote for whichever woman's on the ballot paper. But in this case, they do have... Liz Kendall and Yvette Cooper, both of whom are seen as credible candidates and as as serious players for different reasons. And this this is a, actually a point at which we can we can sort of congratulate the Labour Party on its progress. That in two thousand and ten, the leadership campaign, Diane Abbott, the only woman, yes. stood, and she only really made the ballot at the last minute because David Miliband donated some of his endorsements to her in a kind of symbolic. He was the front runner. He was being magnanimous kind of way. This time, you've got as you say, two credible female candidates. Also Mary Cray kind of not quite in the running, but making a play for it. Um, given that Labour has made so much of the running over the past few years with all women shortlists and so on, it's about time, right? Did you say, Anoush? Yes, and it's true of the deputy leadership race as well. There's a lot of women um, who are running for that position. Uh, Stella Creasy, Roshanara Ali, Caroline Flint. I don't know if there are any others off the top of my head. Um, Angela Eagle. Angela Eagle, sorry. Sorry, Angela. Um, but yes, it's it's... A mark of the Labour Party's progress, and I really doubt if we saw a Tory equivalent um, leadership process that they would have as many women in the running in that way. Well, Theresa May is the only name that really gets mentioned. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, in terms of the in terms of party leader, yes. And um, one of the things that I think is a shame about the process is that there's only one BME candidate in the whole thing, um, the leadership and the deputy leadership election since Chuka Amuna pulled out. So that's Roshanara Ali, who's mm. the MP for Bethnal Green and Bow. Um, so I think that's a bit of a shame. Um, so it's not really a progress from last time where the only BME candidate was Diane Abbott. Again, yes. Mm. And uh, let's talk a little bit about um, what these candidates might mean for the direction of the party because I know that people who are less engaged with Labour politics than we are I know they exist somewhere uh, perhaps they're even listening um, might say well you know they're all the same aren't they Andy Burnham was a minister uh, I've never even heard of Liz Kendall Yvette Cooper she's been around for ages and I've never really heard of her um, are any of them gonna do anything that Ed Miliband couldn't? Mm. Well I think Liz Kendall is clearly the candidate who would um, probably make the biggest changes in terms of both policy and in and in terms of rhetoric and, and strategy. Um, so she's far more comfortable with the private sector having a, a, a key role in, in the NHS, um, far more relaxed about more free schools opening, uh, both of which could harm her in the, in the Labour leadership contest. I mean, there are some of her supporters who've said to me, um, we're supporting Liz, but we feel that she's uh, been defined as too new Labour, as too Blairite, and um, that's 
maybe a strength once you're leader and once you're reaching trying to reach out to conservative voters but it's a weakness if you're running trying to appeal to labor members some of whom are some of whom are going to sit to the left of kendall and who she may need to win some votes from even if they're second or third preferences to win um but i think whoever wins will break with the Miliband era partly for the pragmatic reasons simply that he was defeated and so simply to carry on as if that didn't happen is just not credible. So at least at the start of their leadership, I think they will explicitly try to make a break in the way that Ed Miliband did when he came in and said, we're turning the page on on new Labour. Um, the question is whether they'll be able to sustain that, because if that approach doesn't work, for instance, they will come under pressure from the left to change direction. Um, but also because um, Ed Miliband, as is becoming clearer now, was almost the most left-wing member of his shadow cabinet. So very few of the candidates ever really believed in his strategy and never really thought he was right to make uh, responsible capitalism and intervening markets, inequality, such big themes rather than, say, aspiration and education and wealth creation and business. And um, none of them none of them supported him. Andy Burnham gave his second preference to David Miliband. So they're all quite different ideological creatures to Ed Miliband. And I think that will become clear uh, whichever one of them wins. And we should also, Anoush, just talk briefly about um, this uh, new candidate emerged from the left wing of the party, Jeremy Corbyn. He's only got, I think, three nominations so far, but he's a kind of late entrant. Yes, he um, only declared his interest in running for the Labour leadership this week. Um, he's probably one of the most left wing Labour MPs, a sort of um, old fashioned socialist type um, who's been MP for Islington North, I think, since 83. Um, so he's been around a long time. Lots of people know him. He's popular on the party's left, but it's just, I think, think too late um, he won't pick up the the signatures that he needs to be on the ballot although there is an appetite among some MPs and lots of party members particularly uh, trade union members for a candidate of the left which they haven't seen so far and explicitly anti-austerity candidate yes as well. yeah yes who's not going to run into the perhaps the problems with the membership that Liz Kendall might that George mentioned. Anyway, uh, thanks very much to you both. Hopefully that's made things a bit clearer. We're also running on the New Statesman website a constantly updating list of who's nominating who, should that be of interest to you. Thanks very much, both of you. Now, with a gem from the New Statesman letters page this week, we have a letter from someone who describes themselves as a triumphant sort of Tory from Ashford Middlesex, who says... While I do not, of course, wish to gloat, I thought that your in-house polling guru Harry Lambert's overconfidence in the pre-election issues demanded some sort of recognition. The polls are calling it for Ed, Harry Lambert calculated, consulting bar charts, not star charts, or old gypsy fairground mystics, which surely goes to show that, as any fool know, there's thinking, wishful thinking, and statistics. Now we're going to talk about Ali Smith's brilliant novel, How to Be Both, which has just won the Bailey's Prize for Fiction. It also won the Goldsmiths Prize, which the New Statesman is associated with. Here to discuss it is our culture editor, Tom Gatti, and our digital assistant, Stephanie Boland. Tom, tell us a bit about... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. About the novel and why it's done so well. The novel is... It's a really ingenious book uh, for those who haven't yet picked it up. It's written in two halves, and depending on which book you pick up, you don't know which order those two halves you're going to get it in. One half tells the story uh, set in the present day uh, of a teenager called George, 15-year-old, whose mother has recently died, and the other half tells the story of a Renaissance uh, fresco artist. And the two are very, very intricately and cleverly intertwined. And it sort of adds up to a book about gender, identity, craftsmanship, craftswomanship, um, art, um, women's place in history. And um, it's a really wonderful book. And I was on the judging panel that gave it to the Goldsmiths Prize late last year. And what was so, the Goldsmiths Prize is, is, was set up to reward innovative fiction, fiction that, that pushes on the novel form, um, that does something new with it. And what, what's so, what was so gratifying about being able to give the prize to this book is that it, it both does that and is hugely enjoyable um, and playful and witty. And um, so I'm really delighted it's, it's won the Bailey's Prize. That was partly why I was so pleased about it as well, because I think Ali Smith is a kind of one-woman argument for the fact that being innovative and experimental doesn't have to mean being boring and worthy. Would you agree with that, Stephanie? I would entirely, and I know this is something she's spoken about um, when she used to work herself on innovative fiction as a lecturer. Um, Ali Smith claims the reason she failed her thesis defence was because she tried to make an argument for innovation as joyful and concerned with everyday lives and not a dry thing at all and it's exactly that urge to see the pleasure in the everyday that she translates into her own work it's incredible I remember when we saw her speak at the Cambridge Literary Festival uh, last autumn and she said that um, she the concept of splitting the book in the two halves that could appear either way around came to her quite early in the process and she sort of spoke to her publisher and said can we do this? Because I don't really want to do this novel without that. And of course, you know, she's uh, an author with a great reputation, so they were willing to take the risk on that. But is that something that uh, maybe an author who's just starting out, would they get that kind of allowance, do you think? I expect they'd be advised against it. Um, I think she has built up a huge amount of goodwill, and I know that her, her publisher is hugely behind her and would bend over backwards to do anything that she wanted to do. Um, I think a, a, a younger or a fresher writer would be advised to sort of mm, m- maybe do something more straightforward first and, and see how it pans out. I mean, the, the interesting thing about that is that at first glance, it really it does seem a bit like a gimmick when someone describes it to you, but it it works it works so well. Um, and just to pick up on what um, Stephanie was saying about the, the, this kind of joyfulness and in innovation, there's um, I think that I think that's one of the things that has almost counted against Ali Smith in terms of her 
reputation over the years and that yes it's correct that she's very highly regarded but up till now she hasn't um she hasn't won the booker prize um she hasn't won the overall costa prize um she hadn't until now won the um women's prize for fiction whether the baileys or the orange and i think um some of that resistance was partly due to the fact that she is she is very she's very playful and people often feel more comfortable giving prizes to books that have obviously weighty or serious subjects which perhaps leads us into the sort of gender um the gender exactly subject. yes so i was just going to say um we've had a, a piece on the new statesman website today by sarah dytum talking about this this idea that um we need things like the Bailey's Prize, which explicitly rewards women's fiction, because this I, there's this, still this lingering idea that men write about serious subjects and women write about silly subjects. Women's novels about human stories are chick lit, but Jonathan Franzen's novels about human stories are great literature. Um, and the Bailey's Prize explicitly sets out to sort of correct in favour of that. Um, and so it makes sense that it's recognised Ali Smith when she's not been recognised elsewhere, apart from by the Goldsmiths, that looks particularly innovation. I know, Stephanie, you're a big fan of the Bailey's Prize continuing to do this. Oh, completely, completely. I think you, you can't... I hate to say it, but you can't underestimate how crap we are in this country at promoting women's writing. Um, every year when the Vida statistical count comes out, we find every big literary magazine fails to cover women's writing. Um, I know the LRB this year reviewed 192 men to 58 women. I mean, these are staggering statistics. And I don't think they've reviewed this Ali Smith novel. Which, given now that it's been so <laughs> rewarded, makes them look pretty stupid, right? You'd hope, at least in the eyes of their subscribers. Um, but uh, there's, uh, there's something else to this as well, isn't there? That um, a study came out just this week, I think, that said that not only do... Uh, books by women not win awards um books about women don't win awards so you know hillary mantel is one of britain's you know most famous novelists working today but her two most famous novels are about the great historical serious man thomas cromwell um tom do you think do you recognize that i mean we see the sacks and sacks of books that come across your desk that you choose between for our books pages does that strike you I don't think it's reflected in what's published, um, but clearly this study shows that it's reflected in what we give prizes to. Um, so you can't argue with the fact that the Booker between 2000 and 2014, as it says in the report, was won by nine books by men about men or boys, three books by women about men or boys, two books by women about women or girls, and one book by a woman writer about both. So that's the, the large majority is by men about men. Um, but that's not a reflection of what's published. I think what's published probably skews the other way, to be honest, because we know that um, women read, women consume more books, women read more books than men, and they're a bigger part of the, the publishing market. Um, so they are really underrepresented in, in, in the prizes. And I'm, the only, I really struggle to, and, and even Sarah in her very good piece doesn't, she admits that she doesn't really understand why, why this is. and. Um, the only, unless you're going to talk about deeper kind of institutional things, the only thing that I can think about is this thing of subject matter that we we still have this sort of hierarchy of subject matter, which is which I think is the reason why the Booker Prize, for instance, this year went to a book about war rather than Ali Smith's novel, which mm. I think a lot of people, both 
uh, within the industry and outside it felt was was a better book and would have been a worthier winner, notwithstanding that the, the Flanagan is is a great novel. Um, so this, you know, this the fact that women do often pick up different subject matter um, can count against them in these um, in these prizes. And that kind of circles back to what you were saying before about the subject matter of how to be both and about this idea of um, craft and art and the difference between the two that, you know, uh, sort of craft is something that women do, but art is something that men do. I know this is something you have strong views on, Stephanie. Yeah, completely. And it's it's fantastic in this novel for, for those who have read it. And if you haven't, hopefully we're not spoiling too much. Um, one of the central things is that in the novel you have an artist trying to demand their worth or what they perceive as their worth whether it's vanity or whether it's valid is a this is the fresco artist this is the fresco artist who writes to uh, the sort of um, aristocratic patron and asks to be paid more than the other artists because he she is better yes this yeah. is right yeah so the the novel raises all of these questions that that then come up in the discussion of Ali Smith's work how much are you entitled to demand for your work and can you, as a female artist, say, no, I think I'm better than other people? Yeah, when we asked, um, when Ali Smith did, did an event at Goldsmiths and, and she was asked, it was with the sh- with all the shortlisted uh, novelists for the Goldsmiths Prize and they were all asked, you know, what's your novel about, if you had to kind of sum it up in a sentence. And novelists generally don't like being asked this and quite a few <laughs> things that, you know, I couldn't possibly say in a way that suggested it's so sophisticated and profound that I couldn't possibly sum it up into a sentence. But what I love about Ali Smith is she just comes straight, she just comes straight out with it. And she said that the book was about justice. Um, I can't remember the exact line, but it was justice on a large scale um, uh, across generations, across borders. And, and I think part of that is uh, a justice, a, a gender justice, a justice for um, women who have been um, underpaid, undervalued um, and underrepresented both historically and now. And we should also I think talk briefly about the, the other half of the novel, the part mm. that deals with George the teenage girl because um, it's something that, now my, my sister, little sister is in her early 20s and she's not a big novel reader but she absolutely loved this book I think because she saw herself in George, you know George has lost her mother, she's sort of dealing with uh, having a obnoxious younger brother and not really sure what was going on in her mother's life and she's she's thinking about the internet and privacy and what you can see and what you should see and all these things that I think young women particularly are thinking of all the time now um, but I, I can't tell you how rare it is for her to feel like she sees herself in a prize-winning novel. Yeah it's a, and, and Ali Smith just has an amazing ability to capture teenagers voices and, and young people's voices and um, when I talked to her about this, she couldn't really explain it. When it was pointed out to her, oh, you have you have a lot of young protagonists, you have a lot of teenage protagonists, she sort of was quite surprised by that and didn't think that that was something she particularly focused on. But I, di- I do think she has a real um, aptitude for capturing those voices and also for, you know, she is brilliant at writing about the internet and, and technology, um, which not every novelist of, uh, of her... Um, age and seniority would be particularly interested in, in engaging with um, I don't think she's a particularly she's not on Twitter you know she's mm. not a hugely socially media engaged person but she just is interested in the ways that stories travel so of course she's interested in 
the internet. Um, but yeah, the novel does that really well. Mm. And the sense of communication with mm. the past. When I saw her speak on this novel, she said, you know, I'm my 60-year-old self and my 8-year-old self at the same time. And her ability to inhabit these precocious children again really reminds you how much novel writing is to do with reaching to those different selves and also to into history and into historic justice. She has a fantastic sense of time and timeliness. That's true, actually. It's it's the um, and, and partly what this novel is designed to do is to tell different stories simultaneously, and that's what she she when she talks about the fresco form, she's talking about different paintings sort of painted on top of each other. So you have a layered effect, but also I think you're right that her sense of childhood is probably because she's very in touch with her own childhood, and she wrote a short story for us at Christmas, which um, in which she wakes up one morning and goes into the sitting room and there are all these children in there and they're all sort of her and her partner's childhood selves and they've sort of come back to visit them um, and that, that's a brilliant sort of physical representation of something that she does a lot in her fiction I think. Well I think on that note we'll say go out buy the book read it if you haven't Absolutely. if you've already got it read it again I'm, I'm actually this weekend I'm now going to read it read again it the other, the other way, way around, around. Yeah. read exactly it. what I'm going to yeah. do it's well yeah. worth doing that yeah. yeah they found most people don't get halfway through which is so sad in the, they did this you know study of e-readers and how far people get but I don't know if people just kind of get too emotionally overwhelmed and have to put it down that's what I'm telling myself has happened yeah they couldn't possibly get bored <laughs> I cannot conceive of a world in which you would get bored of this novel anyway thank you very much Tom and Stephanie Thanks for listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Caroline Crampton. Our producer today was Anna Leskovich. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. And you can find more details and all our back episodes on newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. 